Good morning, church. Good morning, guests. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ken Rucker. I have the privilege of serving as a teaching pastor here. And if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. We are walking through a study of this book. We're in chapter 3, and this morning we will be covering the last few verses of chapter 3 as we look at the seventh of seven letters that Jesus writes to seven real historical churches in Asia Minor. So this morning we're looking at the letter to the church in Laodicea. It is my assertion that the church in America bears more resemblance to this church in Laodicea than to any of the other churches that we've looked at in chapters 2 through 3. This was a very wealthy, affluent, and prosperous church. And as a result, they had grown to the place where they felt as if they didn't need God any longer which in turn led them to a place of utter spiritual poverty, a condition of which, by the way, they were apparently completely unaware because their material wealth had blinded them to it. To this church, Jesus has reserved his most stern rebuke. But it's not all negative. Because incredibly and graciously, Jesus also offers this church an opportunity to repent. So since the church in America looks more like this church than any of the others, may we pay special attention this morning to what Jesus has to say to this church. Because we too relatively speaking, are extraordinarily wealthy and affluent, not only individually as Christians, but corporately as the church. And if we're not careful, we too could be lured into a false sense of self-sufficiency, to where we convince ourselves that we don't really need God in any kind of practical daily sense. We've got money in the bank. We've got jobs to sustain ourselves. If we need something, we buy it. If we want something, we work for it. If we get sick or injured, we've got insurance. And we've got health care. We've got 401ks for our retirements. After all, in the end, what do we really need God for on a daily basis? This is the mindset that we can begin to flirt with when materially we have everything that we could need. So let's listen as Jesus dictates this letter to the Apostle John intended for the church in a city that looks very much like the church of today. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, continuing through the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, 
the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it has been this morning to come to you in humble prayer, to sing to you songs of rejoicing, songs of repentance, songs of worship. You deserve every ounce of worship that we could ever possibly offer and more. And Father, we continue in that spirit of worship as we turn now to your precious word. We thank you so much for this book, Father. And we're thankful for what it is. It is your very breath, inspired by your spirit, Lord. We ask this morning that you speak to us from it. Not just so that we would know more about it, but so that our lives would be transformed by its truth. Father, we ask that the gospel would would be made readily apparent in this passage. And Father, those that are far from you this morning, whom you have sovereignly brought within earshot of this gospel, we pray that you would give them faith. We pray that you would give them a new heart and walk them across the line of faith to trust in Christ alone. And we, whom you have done that to us, graciously and mercifully, may we cling to that gospel. May we cling to the hope therein. We thank you for this word. Please speak through me, Father. I only bring to the table the ability to get in your way. And so, Father, remove me from the stage. And may you speak to your people from your word. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this is the seventh of seven letters. They've all followed the same basic format. There's an opening in verse 14, a closing in the last two verses, and then the body of the letter in verses 15 through 20. 
The opening of this letter includes the same two elements that all of the other letters have included. And I want to touch on them briefly. First, there is the identification of the audience. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words. And so the intended audience here is the church in Laodicea. So what do we know about this city compared to all of the others that we've looked at thus far? So Laodicea is about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. That's where we were last, last Sunday, the church in Philadelphia. And so we started out in Ephesus. We've made kind of a horseshoe shape around all of Asia Minor. And now we're 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Laodicea was located at the crossroads of two trade routes, one that ran north-south and one that ran east-west. The one that ran east-west was the, the, the major Roman trade route that ran all the way through Asia Minor, from Ephesus in the west all the way over to Syrian Antioch in the east. And because of its strategic location at the crossroads of these trade routes, Laodicea was a center of banking and finance and commerce and trade. And that resulted in them being a very wealthy city. And you saw it all over the place in the city. In Laodicea was the largest sporting amphitheater um, in all of Asia Minor where they had all kinds of, of sporting events and gladiatorial conquests. Additionally, there was a famous medical school in Laodicea. And they were known for coming up with all kinds of medical innovations for treating eye diseases. They were also known in Laodicea for both manufacturing and the commerce of very fashionable clothes made out of this rare, pure black wool that was available in this region. Laodicea was also designated a free city by the emperor, by Rome, which gave it even greater economic independence, which allowed it to accumulate even greater wealth. So much wealth that when a massive earthquake destroyed the city in the year A.D. 60, the Laodiceans refused financial help from Rome and rebuilt the entire city from its own financial coffers. The bottom line is that Laodicea was one of the wealthiest cities in all of Asia Minor in the first century A.D. And this church finds itself in this culture, undoubtedly influenced by the wealth and the affluence of the culture around it which is what prompts Jesus to write this letter to them here in Revelation chapter 3. In the second half of verse 14, Jesus characterizes himself as the writer. He's done this with each of the letters. And his characterization of himself gives an indication as to what he's going to say to the church. He calls himself here in chapter 14 the Amen, which means the God of truth. 
the, the, the God who keeps his promises. When he makes his covenant promises, he keeps them. You can count on it. You, you, you can't buy your way into his kingdom, but he's going to keep his covenant promises. He is the amen. He calls himself the faithful and true witness, which refers to him faithfully both declaring and securing God's covenant promises for his people. And then lastly, he calls himself the, the beginning of God's creation, which don't misunderstand him. He does, he's not saying here that he's part of creation or that he is created. We know that Jesus is not created. He had no beginning. He was in the beginning, John himself said in his gospel. This doesn't mean that he was part of creation, but that he is the very source or beginning point of all of creation. He is the one who started it. In other words, he is the creator. So Jesus is setting them up here. That's what he's doing in this self-characterization of himself. He's setting them up because he is going to level at them an accusation of being self-reliant and self-sufficient. Can you imagine getting a letter from a God like this and declaring to him, I don't need you. The amen, the faithful and true, the beginning, the source, the starting point of all of creation. How incredibly prideful of this church to think that they don't need this God. And so he launches into the body of his letter in verses 15 through 20. And as we unpack this letter, we notice right away that Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say about this church. Nothing good whatsoever. Which is a change from the letter that we saw last week to the church in Philadelphia. To them, he had nothing bad to say. But to this church in Laodicea, he has absolutely nothing good to say about them. The content of what Jesus has to say to them can be summarized in an accusation that he levels at them in verses 15 through 16. A diagnosis of how they got there in verse 17. Two pieces of counsel that he gives them in verses 18 and 19, and then an invitation that he offers them in verse 20. So since there is absolutely nothing good that, that Jesus can commend of this church, he launches directly into his accusation of them, his rebuke of them. Listen to verses 15 through 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What is Jesus saying here? I wish that you were either hot or cold. What does he mean? For a number of years, I thought that Jesus was referring here to the spiritual temperature of the Laodiceans' fervor for God. That if someone was hot spiritually, it meant that they were on fire for Christ, and that was good, right? And that they were, if they were cold spiritually, then that meant that they had 
fallen out of love with him, that their love for Christ had grown cold, kind of like the church at Ephesus who had lost its first love. And that meant that they had lost their fervor for him. But in thinking that, I, I never understood why Jesus would prefer for the Laodiceans to be cold spiritually rather than being lukewarm. I mean, at least if you're lukewarm, you got some kind of warmth, right? Wouldn't that be preferred over being cold spiritually? Over a cold heart and a cold spirituality. And so that confused me. But most Bible scholars tell us that Jesus isn't referring here to the spiritual temperature of the Laodiceans. But he was referring to a known problem with the city's water supply. You see, for all of the city's wealth, they did not have a natural, fresh water supply that was nearby. And so they had to rely on these Roman aqueducts that were constructed in order to deliver water from faraway sources. And there were two sources, two springs, that provided water for the city of Laodicea. One was the city of Hierapolis, which was about eight miles to the north. And Hierapolis was known for its hot thermal springs that had healing properties in them. And the other source was a spring over in Colossae, a little bit further down the the, the road to the west of them about 15 miles in that direction. And they were known for having a cold, freshwater spring that was, a ref- was refreshing um, drinking water. So the problem was, after the hot water from the thermal springs in Hierapolis had traveled through the Roman aqueduct, aqueduct for eight miles, it was understandably no longer hot. And conversely, the cold, refreshing water that went through the Roman aqueduct for 15 miles from Colossae, when it traveled through that, when it got to Laodicea, it was no longer cold and no longer refreshing. In both instances, it was lukewarm when it reached the city. It was tepid. It smelled funny and it tasted nasty. And this was a known problem in the city. So the idea here is that both cold water and hot water water are to be preferred to lukewarm water. Both hot water and cold water are, are good in this analogy and useful. But lukewarm water is nasty and useless. And when you're expecting hot water or cold water and you get lukewarm water, it makes you want to spit it out. Jesus is saying that the, the, the Laodiceans had become so spiritually complacent and apathetic that they were useless to him. And, and Jesus uses very graphic language here. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth because of your lukewarmness. The New American Standard says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
King James says, I will spew you out of my mouth. So this is, this is not a, a voluntary spitting. Literally, this is an involuntary vomiting out. Seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Seems pretty harsh for him to say this to the Laodiceans. Jesus, in essence, saying, you disgust me. And I will vomit you. It makes me want to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I know that's not a nice thing to hear on a Sunday morning. But you know what? We need to, we need to feel the visceral reaction that Jesus has to the spiritual apathy and complacency of these believers in Laodicea. They had become useless to Jesus and useless for his kingdom purposes. And it absolutely disgusted him. It disgusted him. What had caused them to become so spiritually complacent and apathetic? What had, what had happened to them? So Jesus moves from this accusation of them being spiritually apathetic and complacent to a diagnosing of how they got there. So we see that in verse 17. We see this diagnosis or, or the heart conditions that these Laodiceans had that, that gave rise to them being spiritually apathetic and complacent. He says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Materially, they were right. They were rich. They were wealthy. They were affluent. They had prospered. And materially, they needed nothing. They were wealthy and affluent and prosperous. But listen, that wasn't their problem. That, that wasn't the problem that Jesus was addressing. Their affluence was not the problem. That, that may have led to the problem. That, that may have created the condition that they were more likely to succumb to their problem, but their wealth itself was not the problem. Their problem was that they had allowed their wealth and affluence to lull them into this false sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency to where they felt they no longer really needed God. This is why Jesus will later tell them to buy from me gold refined by fire. Buy from me white garments. Buy from me salve for your eyes. You can only get those things from me, he says. Come to me for those things. Instead, up to this point, the Laodicean believers had convinced themselves that they didn't need God for that. They could achieve those things. They could earn those things. They could buy those things. They could get those things as a result of their own doing, from their own hands. They had convinced themselves that they were self-reliant, that they were self-sufficient. But Jesus says, you are not sufficient at all. Actually, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You are spiritually impoverished. And that's not the worst part. Not only did this church suffer from 
dreadful spiritual poverty, the worst part is that they weren't even aware of that. Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They don't even realize that they suffer from spiritual poverty. They're they're even blind to that. They, They don't even know that they are spiritually impoverished. And so Jesus graciously, graciously and mercifully makes them aware of this through this rebuke. Their material wealth and affluence, coupled with their own sin nature and their own flesh, had created a perfect storm to where these believers had stopped relying on Christ. They'd stopped begging God to help them fight against sin, relying on Christ alone to help them live faithfully for him, live on mission for them, and grow in their faith for them. They didn't see their daily and constant need for Christ because all their needs were met, according to them, and seemingly by their own hands. And this terribly misguided self-reliance and this perceived self-sufficiency had led them to utter spiritual poverty. And they weren't even aware of it. So Jesus pulls no punches here and he makes them aware of this. He makes them aware, you're not rich. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You are spiritually impoverished. You who have such material wealth, you've got the banks, you've got the financial institutions, you've got the commerce, you've got the trade, but you are dirt poor. You who have the latest medical innovations for for eye diseases, you're actually spiritually blind. And you who walk around in the latest fashions of the pure black wool of Laodicea, you are spiritually naked and unclothed. Friend, I think think we should come to the grips with the fact that this could be a description of us. This could be a description of the church in America today. This could be a description of you and I. Compared to the majority world, we are, all of us, extraordinarily wealthy and affluent. The problem is not our wealth. The problem is what our wealth could lead to if we're not careful. And since we are wealthy and affluent materially, the conditions are right for us falling into this sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and spiritual apathy and complacency. So, does that describe you? Have you become self-reliant? Have you lost the sense of your desperation for Christ for your every breath? That you need him every hour of every day that you 
need him for everything in life. Have you lost that? Have you convinced yourself in a very practical way all you need to do is rely on yourself? Pastor and author Juan Sanchez says that one of the greatest evidences of this attitude of spiritual apathy and complacency and self-sufficiency is a lack of prayer. Think about it. If we've convinced ourselves that we have all that we need and that if there's something that we don't need, we just buy it or we earn it or we achieve it or we work hard to get it, then why do we need to pray for it? Prayer is a reminder that we are not self-sufficient and we are not independent, but that in fact we are dependent on God for everything in life and afterlife. So what does your prayer life say about on whom you are relying for anything in your life? What does it say? Does it say you're relying on God? Another indicator that we've become self-reliant and self-sufficient is when we drift away from biblical community and drift towards isolation. If we think that we have all that we need and that we have procured that by our own doing, then we will not pursue community instead we will drift away from it we'll say that we are self-sufficient and that kind of mentality convinces us that we don't need anyone else and so we don't pursue biblical community and we don't pursue fellowship with one another in the body of christ and we find ourselves drifting towards isolation do you sense that in your own life a pull away from relationships in the body of Christ, a pull away from a place where you are dependent on one another in the body of Christ? Perhaps it's because you've wrongly convinced yourself that you don't need anything, that you're rich, prosperous, and Jesus says, no, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked apart from me. And so this strong rebuke from Jesus here is a wake-up call for the Laodiceans to not be lulled into spiritual apathy and complacency just because you have a, a modicum of temporary material wealth and affluence. To wake up to the reality that you may be in spiritual poverty. But Jesus doesn't just offer this diagnosis for how they got into this place. He also offers them counsel for how to get out of it, for how to change. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous 
and repent. Jesus counsels them here to do two things. First, rely on Christ for everything. And secondly, repent of your own self-reliance and perceived self-sufficiency. He tells them, you may have all the banks in the region. You may have all the financial institutions. You've got all the commerce and you've got all the trade. You are rich materially, but spiritually you are dirt poor. And so come to me for spiritual wealth. And note that the spiritual wealth that he describes here is gold refined by fire, which reminds us of the spiritual wealth that is that is only possible when it is tested through the furnace of affliction. Gold is refined, it is purified when heat is applied to us and to it and the dross is skimmed away. And what remains is pure gold. And so this is gold refined by fire. This is, this is a, a faith that is made more valuable for having gone through the furnace of affliction and being tested through suffering. This is what makes you spiritually wealthy, church. Jesus tells them, you, you enjoy some of the most sought-after fashions of the day in that pure black wool of your region, but you're spiritually naked. And so come to me to be clothed. Come to me for white garments, he says. White garments here is a reference to righteousness. And so Jesus is referring here to his own righteousness, which believers are clothed with through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Apart from us being clothed with Jesus' righteousness, our sin is laid bare before God's eyes. And we feel the shame of our own spiritual nakedness because there's nothing with which to cover the shame of our ugly sin and rebellion. Some of you this morning may be spiritually naked before the Lord. You have nothing to cover the sin and shamefulness of your rebellion against God. But those who come to faith in Jesus Christ are clothed with his righteousness. We're told in Romans that the righteousness of Christ is credited to the account, to the account of those who come to him in faith. Trusting that what he did on the cross as full and sufficient payment for our sins, therein is justification. Therein are we justified only by being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So if that describes you this morning, if you feel the shame of the, 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 your spiritual nakedness laid bare before a holy God, your only hope is to trust in Christ alone to cover that over with the perfect white robe of the righteousness of Jesus earned for you in his life and paid for you in his death on the cross. 
Jesus further tells the Laodiceans here, you, you, you may be able to medically treat the worst eye diseases of our day, but spiritually you are blind. You are blind as a bat. You can't see a thing. And so come to me. Rely on me. Buy from me. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So that you may be able to see. He tells them, rely on me for everything. And, and, and how, how, do we, how do we buy gold refined by fire from Jesus? How do we buy white garments from him? How do we buy the salve for our eyes from Jesus? It is only by faith in Christ alone. And so Jesus says, rely on me for everything. Understand, church, that everything good that you have, I gave you, Jesus says. And whatever you need, I will give to you. You provide nothing for yourself apart from my sovereign and gracious and perfect provision. And nothing that you need will I withhold from you. And so come to me, Jesus says, and trust me with your care and trust me with your provision and I will care for you. Rely on me for your spiritual, emotional, intellectual, physical needs. And friend, this should be a call to every single one of us to rely on Christ each and every day, moment by moment, for everything that we need in life. For our physical health, our spiritual health, our emotional health, for all of our needs, physically, intellectually, relationally, etc., etc. Don't rely on self, Jesus says. Rely on me. Rely on Christ. This doesn't mean that he is then obligated to give us everything that we want, but it does mean that he will give us everything that we need. Count on it. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true. This requires that, that we see our utter spiritual poverty apart from him. That we, We've got to be aware of that and then come to him for everything daily. Set your hope on Christ alone for everything that you need and all that he promises for our future. Every day we should pray, Lord, I need you. Apart from you, I am nothing. I am wretched. I am destitute. I am hopeless, but with you, I am spiritually rich. I am positionally righteous, and I have a confident hope for today and tomorrow. So help me, Lord, help me to cling to you today, for I need you desperately every single hour. So he first counsels them to rely on Christ for everything, but secondly, he counsels the Laodiceans to repent of their self-reliance. Look again at verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So gracious, so merciful of Jesus. Here the Laodiceans in their stubborn self-reliance had spurned the help of God. With their heart and their actions, they were saying to him, I don't need you, I got it figured out. And yet, Jesus still says, those whom I love are the ones I discipline and reprove. So he reminds them of his gracious love for them 
And he reminds them here that his love is displayed through discipline and reproof. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, which necessarily tells us that if he doesn't discipline us, it's a display that he doesn't love us. It is not loving to see someone in danger and not warn them. This attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency is dangerous. It is dangerous. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, this craving of more affluence and uh, prosperity and wealth that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And one of the pangs of craving that kind of material wealth and affluence is that it blinds us to our spiritual poverty. We don't feel it as much. It makes us feel self-reliant and self-sufficient, and it leads us to a place of spiritual apathy and complacency. That's where the Laodiceans were. And so this rebuke from Jesus must have been difficult for them to hear. It's hard to hear something like this, right? Imagine Jesus sending this letter to you. It would be hard to hear. But what does the saying say? The truth hurts, right? It is loving to be told the truth. Scott Duvall says, in our culture, love is often portrayed as nothing more than sentimental support of another person. That's not much help, is it? Just, it's okay, it'll be better. But he goes on to say, and I quote, But when people don't want to hear what is in their long-term best interest, they need someone to love them enough to speak truth into their life, unquote. And so here Jesus loves the Laodiceans enough to speak truth to them. And I pray that God's, by God's grace, to the degree that some of us in this very room have been lulled into this sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and spiritual apathy and spiritual complacency, that the Lord would be so gracious as to love us this morning and to drive this truth home into our hearts and lives. God's disciplining love is gracious and merciful because it's, it's unearned, it's undeserved, and in most cases, it's unwanted even. I mean, consider the Laodiceans. They were stubborn in their self-sufficiency. Stubborn. They weren't looking for or or perhaps even wanting God's love, but he gives it to them nonetheless. And it reproves and disciplines them. And that's a good thing for them. It's a good thing when God does this for us. He gives us two commands in verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Two imperative verbs. Be zealous for what? Be zealous for the Lord. To to zealously, that, that means with zeal to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ for our only hope, as our only hope, to set our hope on him for everything, to with zeal reject a spirit of self-reliance and self-sufficiency, and with zeal zealously embrace Christ daily, and then to repent, to turn away from our own self-reliance 
our own spiritual apathy and complacency and to rely on Christ for everything, to repent of living as if we really don't need God. And then in the same gracious spirit, Jesus invites the Laodiceans in verse 20 to avail themselves of intimate fellowship with him. How gracious, how merciful. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is not an evangelistic appeal. You know, for a number of years, we would find Revelation 3 verse 20 on gospel tracks as if God were knocking on the door of the unbeliever's heart, just patiently waiting for the unbeliever to open the door by faith. Listen, church, that is not how God awakens an unbeliever to faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't wait patiently on the other side of the door, patiently waiting for us to open it. No, he breaks the door down. And he bursts through the wall and he barrages into our life and he gives us a new heart and he gives us the faith to trust in his son Jesus. That's how God awakens a heart to trust in him. And that's not what we see here. Instead, what we see here is a, is a picture of a believer who has become so complacent spiritually, so apathetic spiritually, and so self-reliant that they are either oblivious to Jesus knocking at the door, or they simply don't care. And why is Jesus knocking on the door in the first place? Because he wants to enjoy intimate fellowship with them, to enjoy a meal with them, to spend time with them. How gracious and merciful of this Jesus to want this with those who had spurned him. That's what he wants with us who spurned him yesterday and will probably spurn him today. He wants that intimate fellowship with us and so he's knocking on the door imagine if susan and i invited you over to our house for a meal and so you drive to our house and you get out of the car and you walk up to the front door and you knock on the front door and no one answers so you knock again and you wait patiently and no one answers and you knock again and again and again and finally you look in one of the front windows and you see Susan and I just taking it easy on the couch in the living room, playing tiddlywinks or whatever, totally oblivious that you're knocking on the door or, or worse, seeing you and not caring. Well, that's just us. Imagine it's not you knocking on that door, but the amen, the faithful and true the beginning, the, the source of all creation, knocking on that door, and we are oblivious or don't care that he's there. Friend, have you been lulled into a false sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency? Have you somehow been become convinced that you don't really need God on a daily, practical basis. 
You might not say that with your lips, but perhaps your life betrays that you really don't think you need God that much in your life. If that's been true of you recently, and Jesus this morning has graciously and mercifully made you aware of that, please know that Jesus would like nothing more than to restore that intimate, deep fellowship with you. He wants to spend that time with you. So for God's glory and your joy, repent of your self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Repent, turn away from your spiritual apathy and complacency and be zealous and with zeal come to Christ, cling to Christ in the gospel and cling to Christ and rely on him for everything in life. Let's pray. Our God, may we who have ears hear what the Spirit says to us, the church, this morning. That you find disgusting followers of Jesus Christ who have become self-reliant and spiritually complacent and have bought into the lie that we don't need you every moment of every hour of every day. Father, we see ourselves in these Laodiceans. God, we ask that you would forgive us for our spiritual apathy and complacency. And we ask, Father, that you would give us the zeal with which to zealously pursue you and cling to you and rely on you and not ourselves for everything in life. And Father, we're thankful that because of the gospel, we have the hope that this can be real. That that grace is available to us to sustain us and grow us in our faith and to, and to give us that zealousness with which to pursue you. Pray, Father, that that would be true of us as a church, Father, that, that when you look at us, you would not see a church that is spiritually apathetic, but a church that is zealous for you and zealous for good works and zealous for your mission and zealous for the name of Christ. Do that work in us, Father, we pray, so that you might be glorified. And Father, we know that there are mo those among us in this room, those among us in our circles of influence in our lives they cannot call you Father. Instead, they are still lost in their waywardness and sin. They are spiritually blind and spiritually naked. And Father, we ask that you would break into their lives and give them a new heart. Remove that heart of stone that is cold to you and, 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 and replace it with a heart of flesh that is soft in things of God 
Give them the faith to trust in Christ. And Lord, by your grace and for your glory, change them from a sinner to a saint. Change them from an enemy into your child. Do that for your own glory, God, so that you might remake them to be a worshiper of you for the rest of their lives. Father, thankful. We are so thankful for this reminder. Help us to live it out in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.